a, it is a pleasure for me to be back all the time. Uh, I have a chance to visit Living Hope and wonder we'll see what the Lord is doing among you. And uh, continue also in uh, the service that you have in the Book of Romans here. Uh, boy, it's, uh, it's a big one. We're going to be talking about Romans 13, so if you want to take your Bibles and uh, open up to that or open your app, however you're going to access it, uh, you can do that. We're going to be reading it in a minute, uh, but uh, the topic for us is, let's see if we can get that, uh, there we go, is the power of submission. Okay, Paul has been talking about this this power. He's been talking about submission, uh, not just here. He uses the word in the first uh, verse of our text, be subject to. You know, we don't like that word. It's uh, things that, uh, you know, kind of freak Americans out. We, I call it the S word for Americans. You know, we were uh, born off of resistance, and uh, some people are still resisting, and uh, everybody wishes they were in some way or another, but uh, submission is not a word that uh, goes well with our soul. Timothy Keller even calls it the great American idol is uh, to be the master of your soul. And so submission and that idol, they don't really work too well together. But Paul has been talking about this not just here in Romans 13. He's been talking about this in one way or another since the very beginning of the book. When he talks about the gospel, the power of God for salvation, he is talking, making a submission claim. When he talks about in Romans 12... Uh, and in Romans actually 9 through 11, he's talking about the role of Israel according to the promises and according to the covenants. Uh, there is a submission of nations going on in that prophetic claim that the prophets talk about. And when he comes into Romans 12, he's talking about using gifts, prefer one another, love one another, serve one another. These are all submission words, but not in that there are submission ideas, but not in that word. And so we're going to approach this by looking at submission in the sense of uh, we need to get some groundwork. What I'm going to make a claim today is that it is something profoundly human to submit. And uh, against uh, the cultural meme, the cultural norm that would say, it's like, whoa, submission is just, that's a negative thing. To be subordinate is to be weak, it's to be less. It's to be something avoided. Uh, the Bible makes quite the opposite claim. It is beautiful. It is powerful. And God is restoring that in us. It is profoundly human to learn this, to submit. And so that's going to be part of what we build up before we come to apply this to one of the uh, zones of submission, I call them the laboratories of submission, that Paul addresses directly here in chapter 13. Uh, but uh, the reason that we need to start with our humanity uh, really goes back a little deeper into the nature of our God. That this story of submission, and the language here is literally to order under. It's about an order. It's about a proper disposition of things. It is for the sake of relationship and mission. And that brings us to a conversation that we have with our God. Because you see, God has flow. And I'm not talking about his hairdo. See, I have a 22-year-old son who keeps me kind of in the game a little bit. You know, and flow is, uh, he used to have a man bun. He cut that off. He was getting in touch with his Japanese roots. His mother's Japanese. And so uh, he cut that off, but he still has flow. And flow is what you can do when you're surfing and you're, you're, it's all wet and you have enough up there. When you do that thing, it kind of 
whooshes around. You have Flo then. So he's not, you're no longer man bun to me, he's Flo man. <laughs> so uh, the Trinity have Flo, but it's not talking about their hairdo. In other words, there is an order between them. And we see it here, Father, Son, Spirit. It is inviolable. It always goes this way towards us. In creation and redemption, God in his work is always following this order. It also works in reverse. The Spirit is God within. Actually, don't get too tritheistic on us. Uh, they all inhabit each other's works, okay? So we're trying to differentiate. That's part of the mystery and the genius of a triune God. They are different. And the Bible assigns these differences by sort of uh, preeminence or dominance of language. So the Spirit is the one who applies. He's at the end. toward. He touches us most imminently. But don't make it just that the Spirit's in here. It's quite crowded, okay? It's Father, Son are dwelling in here by the Spirit. So our Trinitarian genius and advantage shows up this way in how we worship. And how we, when the arrows, when the flow goes back to Father... It goes, Spirit brings us to the sun. James Packer calls him the floodlight of the sun. He illuminates, so I see the sun better. And guess what? When I see the sun, I get a dose of the Father. Because that's the ultimate end game. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? He says, you must worship God in spirit and in truth, for such the Father is seeking those kind of worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers. Jesus says the Son isn't. The Son is worshipped, and it is right to worship the Son, but it is curious in the New Testament where you never see an act of worship, whether singing to or addressing in prayer, the Spirit. He's never addressed that way. And I think it's because the reason he's doing his job trying to get me to see the Son and the Father. And so there's a flow to us, and back to us. This is not a compromise of their equality. It is not a compromise of, of weakness or less of glory, honor, and power. They are equal, but they differentiate for the sake of their relationship. They always move in this flow. There's a sending order. Jesus always says, the Father sent me, the one sending me. And then he says, I will send the Son. And so, yeah, there's who's sending who. It's, the language is about glorifying each other, but it's, allow, it's about order. It's an ordering that doesn't compromise their equality. It's an order by which they accomplish their, their mission. It's how they differentiate. It's how they love. And that's why when we have the conversation about submission, we are really talking about love. We're talking about humility. We're talking about big pathways in Scripture of what Bible calls us to, to profound human life. It's about, what does that say? It's about denying yourself. It's about the gospel. It's about serving other people. It's about us in relationship. And it's about us in mission, what we're here for. And finally, it's about us as spirit people. You could take a little detour over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. You'll see about uh, being filled with the spirit. Be filled. That means be dominated by. Have his thoughts be your thoughts. 
There's an interesting parallel between being filled with, how you can know what it means. You can be filled with wrath. You know what that means. We have a picture of what that means, right? I have wrath thoughts. I have wrath decisions. I have wrath emotions. When it says be filled by the Spirit, it means have spirit thoughts, spirit emotions, and spirit decisions. So verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that, but then it lets us know what that looks like in a series of participial phrases. Let's say, giving thanks, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And it goes down to verse 21, where it says, submitting to each other. There's that word again. So it's profoundly godlike to learn this, to live this way. And unfortunately, our culture just, it grates against us. We, you know, we straighten our backs, resist. It's interesting, Paul has been talking even about this submission language earlier in the book, in Ephesians, or not Ephesians, in Romans chapter 8, there's one thing that doesn't submit. It's the mindset on the flesh. So here you have walk in the spirit or mindset on the flesh. Submit or can't. You see which side our humanity is called to be upon. And so... Scripture talks about these things we call the orders. Now, remember, we're not talking, we're talking like the Trinity here. We're talking about differentiating for the sake of relationship. We're not talking about weakness, less than. We're talking about equality. And that's one thing, another thing our culture doesn't get. For our, our culture defines equality by sameness. If you're not the same as someone, you're not equal. That's not how God works. For the Trinity is the exact, the exact contradiction of that. They are equal, but they differ. They order. And so when we talk about the orders of Scripture, and when some groups don't like certain parts of those orders, oh, it's patriarchy, or they wave it off, I say it's profoundly beautiful. You're missing something powerful. You're missing some deep highway that has begun from the very person of God all the way before creation and something that is profoundly human to us. So with great trepidation, you, you wave off the submission pieces you don't like. But look at them here. They, they catch everybody. They catch everybody. There's not one of us who is not going to find themselves in one of these labs somewhere. Let's look at them just briefly. The ultimate order is under God. The picture of the Psalms is there, for God alone I wait, for you alone. That's my life. And that's what the gospel is. It is about having this life ordered under God. It's uh, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when, when God calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Give up your God. It's about changing a master the ultimate master. So we, all creation is ordered under God and Christ. These are to the two only objects of belief in the Bible. You don't believe in the church. You don't believe in, in the pastor. You don't believe in anybody. You believe in God and Jesus. There's the ultimate order, the first one. But then there are other orders. There is the body to Christ. Be subject to Christ is what it says. And that's part of the gospel too. 
here in America, individualistic, loving America, you know, uh, the gospel can get pretty truncated down to just me and God. You know, I'm good with uh, the big JC, right? But uh, we walk around like we've decapitated Jesus from his body. We got a little head of Jesus. I'm good. We're walking around. No, Jesus always has a body. It's called the local church. And I think we should maybe uh, think about how we talk about the gospel. It's about getting all of Jesus. And it has an implication for being part of a church. You guys are going to recognize membership today in a little bit. That's awesome. That's profoundly biblical Christianity. So be in subjection to the head, together as a body. The next one, slaves to masters. I call my employers my masters. Sorry, I can't go to this meeting. My masters are calling me to something else. Yeah, that's work is where this comes down for us, but not, not exclusively. There are places where slavery is known still. You see, Scripture has an answer for that, for the person who has no choice. We have the choice, by and large, where we work. There are people who don't have that choice, but Scripture gives the answer how to flourish, even in that, even in that submission, even in that subjection. And that's its genius. Scripture does not neglect even those that way. Wives to husbands. Yes, the language is the same. You could go back to Ephesians 5.24, uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 uh, Timothy. The language is consistent and coherent all the way through the Bible. I, it's a very difficult thing for me to wave off just that part of the orders because it doesn't fit the cultural meme. When you've got something that's consistent and goes transcultural through Scripture, it's Bible's words for take note. This is human. But the call is not to women alone. We're all caught in this some way, like I said. We all have parents coming up. We all have uh, the body of membership to one another. That's how spiritual gifts work. They are preferring the other. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the prophets, uh, two or three, no, you, you set your gift off. Let the other one. It's about preferring and love. I'll show you a better way in that discourse. He goes from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The best way is love. And that is about preferring the other through the use of your gifts. It goes to church leadership also. And this is the, uh, the passage that, uh, yeah, we don't get this too well. It's like, I don't like the leaders. I'm going down the church, uh, down the road. Uh, no, Scripture says you should make your, your leader's life not burdensome. You may not like it, but this is one of the laboratories in which we learn this powerful human trait. Submit. Submit to your church leaders. And this, as I mentioned, is something that is about uh, maturity and gender in the Bible. Because the, the church is a family. Spiritual family is the giant uh, reality of what we are. It's not a metaphor. It's not a picture. The body is one of those, but the family is real. You are related to one another. You are in God's family. That's not a metaphor. But in the family of God, it's just like the, the kinship families. There's order. There's parent level, it's maturity, but there's also gender. I teach this class in, uh, at Talbot, Doctrine of the Church, and we talk about uh, gender in ministry. And sometimes I get the question, 
So, Dr. Sosi, you're saying there's some things women can't do. And I say there's only one thing a woman can't do, and that's be a man. It works the other way, too. Men can't be women. That means that spiritual mothering can't be done by men, no matter how spiritual they are. And spiritual fathering can't be done by women, no matter how spiritual they are. Gender matters. Gender matters for the sake of relationship and for profoundly showing and modeling God in the world. In scripture, I believe, is very consistent that the fathering role of pastor, elder, bishop is gender sensitive. But I also think the, the, the church desperately needs to hear the voice of its spiritual mothers. And that can happen within an ordering still. And that's the way I think uh, we need to start thinking. Where does the church hear the voice of its spiritual mothers? That's subject of another conversation. But the last one up there is where we are today. It is about uh, government. It is about uh, this area of submission, this laboratory. And so whenever you get into the orders, we're going to need to get into the next question, and that's going to be something that it gets a little, yeah, we know this one, and it gets a little where our resistance comes. Because in this present age, dominated by sin, dominated by manipulation, dominated by brokenness, yes, there's going to be disorder in the orders. There's going to be abuse in the orders, and who of us haven't re hasn't reckoned with that? And that's what stiffens our back. So we need an answer for this. And uh, Jesus gives us the answer. And Paul's going to leverage this, uh, but this, uh, the Jesus code that I'm referencing here comes really out of 1 Peter very directly. 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, Peter lists three of the kind of universal injustices that we're going to face in this age. They are injustice from government, they are injustice from family, and they are injustice from work, slave and masters. But in the center of it, oh, right there at the end of chapter 2, Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model for us to learn this role of how to be human. And so I call it the Jesus Code here. It consists of uh, just a couple of points here. Oops, that's the first one's already up there. Um, entrust yourself to God. 1 Peter 2.23 says that's what he did. What's that mean, though? It's kind of a, you know, another word for faith. Have faith. It's one of those boxes, Christianese things we all talk about. But what does it really mean? Lean in there. In, for what did he trust God? That's what we need to know when we're under the laboratory of injustice. Well, you look through Scripture and you get things like Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He saw, he knew what the story was. He knew where his place was in the story. And so it comes down to, I think, the two things that we really strive for and seek and need in our hearts. And that is security and, and significance. These things in God are secure. Security is that I matter. I count for something. That can't be taken away from me because of my God and his story. The place I occupy in this beautiful story that never suffers setback, that has never suffered disappointment, that never stagnates. My place is secure in that. I am his child. I am a child of the king of kings. That's my significance. My security is about I'm loved. 
I am welcomed. I am received, and that will never be taken away from me. Nothing in this age, nothing is going to take away that because this age is passing away. What that tells me in the laboratory of injustice is that you've got this. The big things are, are, are handled. Don't sweat the small stuff and everything is the small stuff. Everything at work is the small stuff. Every injustice, uh, every kind of abuse of the order is the small stuff. That makes you able to offer submission as a gift from a position of power. You see, in the Bible, submission is not about weakness. It's not about being less ordered under. It's not about uh, you don't count. It's, uh, it's about you have power because you are God's. You are awesome in him. And because of that, I can submit to my boss. I can submit to my husband. Uh, not talking about uh, you know, things where it gets abusive, physical, and things like that. Uh, don't take it in that direction. But it uh, doesn't mean I never say no. Because there's an order. And we're going to see that the order. But this submission piece is funded by I'm powerful in God. I offer this as a gift, and then I offer this to an abuser. How can I show this poor soul Jesus? And so you have this bigger picture. It's not about me. It's about him. My future, my destiny is secure. Because of this last one, all things are ordered to God. You see, Paul, we're, with this, we're going to transition into our text and our text is going to start off right at the end of chapter 12. Chapter 12 is all about uh, don't take your vengeance. Why? Verse 19 says, vengeance is mine. God will square things. That's part of entrust yourself to God. Therefore, you can offer submission because he will take care of things. This thing will not be left as a dangling participle forever, for eternity. No, he will resolve it. Let him let him. So we come to our text now, and we can take a look at it and read it. Finally, here we are, three quarters through the sermon, we read the text. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due. As we mentioned, Jesus already gets us into this zone here in the Gospels. There are Caesar's spaces and there are God's. And so that's going to be the start of where we go. So the book context, once again, is about uh, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Learn this submission thing. 
And he's been talking about submission in gifts in chapter 12. Now he's going to talk about submission in government in chapter 14 and 15. He's going to be talking about submission to one another. The weaker brother should be served by the stronger. You don't pull your rights in the body of Christ. You serve and defer. So there's a book context. There's a historical context. Romans had taxes. Boy, did they have taxes. Now, if you were living in Italy... You didn't have the same taxes that out in the provinces. In fact, there was kind of concentric rings of uh, increasing taxation in the Roman Empire. The more periphery provinces, they paid more taxes because there were bigger armies out there. And they had to support the army. And guess where Judea was? Of course, this was written to the Romans. Uh, but the church's origins in Judea, that was one of the troubling provinces for the Roman overlords. And so they kept all sorts of legions out there. But the taxation was heavy. So they knew about taxes. They knew about taxes that supported things they didn't like either because the taxes were a part of the deity system. They supported temples that the Romans built, and their gods were the the foundation of the state. And so taxes went to pagan gods, let alone everything else unjust, maybe not by God's standards also in the ancient world. So if you don't like everything the federal government or the state government spends your taxes on, join the club. The Romans had it bad too. But Paul says, pay your taxes. Because these guys are ministers of God. Over and over. Two times he says they are diakonoi. They are servants. They are the ministers is how it's translated. They are ministers of God. Now, you understand this. For what? That qualifies how good of ministry they do. They are supposed to praise good and punish evil. That's how God's ordered them and called them. If they don't do that, they are not uh, doing their calling. But they are called a minister of God. The last word in verse 6 is is a liturgical word. It's a word for service in, in a sacred space. It's like the governors are appointed by God. They occupy God's space for you. Therefore, occupy and honor the order. And so pay your taxes. And Paul says, keep paying your taxes. You guys yourself knows this because you guys are paying your taxes, he says to them. And you need to respect them. Continue to do that. But that raises, especially for us, a question for, of Americans Ooh, our whole country was born off resistance and rebellion. How does that fit here? You know, in Ukraine, I was there uh, 13 years, as uh, Brother Ben said, and I was, uh, you know, I got learned a little of their history. And there's a registered church and an unregistered church that came out of communism. And this was all they split by the letter of instruction that came in 1961 from the Politburo uh, of the Communist Party. And the letter of instruction had decrees in it that for things like, uh, for Christians, that uh, everyone who was baptized, their name had to be turned into the local government. No children were allowed to be baptized. They couldn't even go to worship service and uh, such like that. And so some of them said, we must, Romans 13, submit to the government. And so they signed on for that. Some of them went underground and they were the unregistered and they met out in the woods and in the secret and uh, things like that. So this has been uh, used by all both sides, this passage. But uh, in America, 
I don't know if you knew this, a bit of history, but this was in uh, the afternoon of uh, July 4th. Uh, in the morning, they were signing the Declaration of Independence there in Philadelphia. In the afternoon, these three guides were designing, let's, uh, let's, what are we, what's the seal going to be of this, this new, new nation? And so, if you can't tell that, it's... Uh, now, I have a pointer here. Let's see if I can laser it up. Maybe I can't. Forget it. Uh, up there on the left is Moses. He's the one with the figure with his arms over, and it is Pharaoh's armies drowning in the seas. That's what they pictured was rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Okay, I don't think that won the day. That's not our seal, I don't think, now. But that was their draft, okay? Uh, but when we talk about resistance, you need to go back to the orders. And you see that the Bible is not against resistance when the orders are out of order. Very interesting, the first one. God orders the family. He has that institution is also ordained by him. And so when government or any other institution starts creeping into that zone, uh, no. And here you have two classic uh, individuals of resistance. These midwives, Shifra and Pua. And what is fascinating is because they are the first named people in the book of Exodus and the superpower, Pharaoh, is never named. This is a total diss. Anyone in the ancient world understanding, reading Exodus for the first time, saying this is a total diss to Pharaoh. Hebrew midwives get their name for eternity in the canon, and Pharaoh is nobody. The Bible's kind of a subversive book. We all know the Daniel story, but go down there to Revelation 13. Revelation is all about the beast and Antichrist, uh, it's pretty clear that this was kind of subversive language to the first century Nero, the Roman emperor. Peter, in his second epistle, talks about, I write to you from Babylon, and he's talking about Rome. It's like, woo, that's some pretty uh, you know, underhanded stuff there to the governing authorities. But we also know that they clearly were not representing God's values of good and evil. They had reversed them in many ways like ours in many places. And so there's resistance. Let me just tell you a little bit, a couple of things about resistance in the last uh, couple of minutes here. I find that when resistance is called for, I usually have better success when I'm resisting for the sake of someone else than me, than injustice done to me. When I stick up for injustice done to other people, that's, uh, I, that goes a little different than when I'm sticking it up for me. But I also do that uh, when I resist, I'm ready to take the consequences when the, when the boot comes down. So scripture knows about resistance. When the orders are not done right, but scripture also knows these things too, the big story. Romans 13.4 always needs to be in parallel with Romans 12.19. 12.19 says, vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay his wrath. And so this idea of resistance and uh, the bigger picture uh, goes against this bigger picture of submission that God has laid out for us. So where does that leave us here? 
Oh, I'm a book person. I wanted to give you a book recommendation before we come to the conclusion. If you want more information about how to live in culture, I think this is a good, a good source. Living in God's two kingdoms. How to live and engage being who you are, your identity as God's person in another kingdom that God has also ordained, that has institutions that we work with, arts, business, education, government. But here we are, the church also. So there's the two kingdoms. He calls them the common and the redemptive kingdom. So let's bring this down, land the plane a little bit. How do we do this? Will we do this the same way Paul said the Romans need to do it and anyone else who reads his epistle? Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. It starts how you think. And that's what scripture is a call to, is to change your thinking Embed truth in your heart by meditating, rehearsing this, and it means learning your story. Learning this big picture that makes you secure enough to offer submission as a gift from power. And that's what Paul does to the Romans in these texts here. He reminds them how secure their love is, that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ, that's in Romans 8. At the end of chapter 11, he's just laid out the whole course of world history, how the, the unfathomable riches of, of the wonder and mercy of God. And then at the end of the book, he's, uh, he does that, he wrap, wraps it all up. That's how we should saturate our day and our identity with who we are. So learn this so that when the boot comes on you, you can offer this submission from power from the power of your true identity and the big story that never suffers setback, that always increases. And then secondly, lean into the labs. There's four of them. Government's one. Family's another one. Your work's another one. And church. That can be another place where you learn to submit it's very easy for us as Americans, I oh, don't like it, don't like the leader, you're getting a little too nosy, a little too pushy in my life, I'm down the road. That's not, that's not a sign of, uh, that's not how someone who's going to grow talks. Stay in the lab. Work the lab from the power. Learn to give so that you can show Jesus to those who need it, to need him.